Good morning. As your program says, I'm Lilia Wagner, and I'm very glad to be spending the next hour and 15 minutes with you talking about a topic that really is very essential to the success of our causes. Now, fundraising uh, is one of these topics that uh, sometimes you think people shy away from in polite company. For example, when I travel, and I travel considerably, and I might uh, meet someone, make the eye contact, and we start chatting, let's say in the airport or in the airplane next to me. And you know, the first thing that people talk about when they're strangers and they meet is, what do you do? So if that person looks interesting, and I think I want to keep the conversation going, I might say I'm a teacher or a trainer, which sounds noble. Or I might say I work for the nonprofit sector, and much of America is still puzzled by, you mean you can't make a profit? <laughs> but, uh, and there are several other conversation openers that I can think of, especially when I was full-time with Indiana University, you know, big university, lots of interesting things happening. But if at that point I want to make sure that I have peace and quiet for the rest of my trip so I can do the work I brought along, and they say to me, what do you do? I have a nice little pause, and then very enthusiastically I proclaim, I'm a fundraiser. And that guarantees me the peace and quiet I want. Now, why do we have those kinds of attitudes about fundraising? Because so much fundraising has been done badly. The right to fundraise that we have in this country, which, folks, is one of our freedoms. I'm a refugee. I came here as a child, and I very much appreciate the rights that we have in this country that allow us to run nonprofit causes, to ask for money, to congregate freely. All those rights that many countries, including the one that I had to leave as a child, did not have. And what I find interesting in all the international work that uh, I am privileged to do is how much of the rest of the world, whether it, whether it is the former Soviet republics that are now free and moving towards civil society, or whether it's organizations in countries like Mexico that are progressing in social awareness and therefore intervention, how much they understand that in order to make progress, they have to fundraise. To me, fundraising is a privilege. And fundraising is a privilege because, folks, it's not about the money. Why are you here? Because each one of you, and I know a few of you here, represents a cause that is worthwhile. Represents a cause that has an impact on or influences certain people. These people need or want our intervention. And it takes money to do it. Sometimes I think fundraising is a matter of perspective. You know, people think, oh, it's a societal thing. It's not the polite thing to do. Uh, there are all kinds of reasons why people don't want to ask for money. And one of the biggest is fear of rejection. That's a universal fear. When I work in other countries and we do this little exercise of why do people give, why do people not give, 
And why don't they want to ask? It always is interesting to see how much universality there is in those answers. Fundraising is as old as the Bible itself. The Greeks and the Romans have records of fundraising. And it is definitely a noble thing to do, but I think about perspectives on fundraising, and I see a longtime friend, Judy Aitken here, who has done marvelous work in Southeast Asia. We met in the early 80s when I took a group of students from Union College over to work there, and that was my first fundraising experience. We had the opportunity to come over there and help in the camps, and it took money. I didn't know it was fundraising, but it took money to get the kids over there and sustain them, so we asked for money for the cause. But I distinctly remember I was in one of the apartments there using a typewriter. This was in the early 80s, pre all our wonderful iPhones that could now communicate across the ocean. And doing some work, I was going to fax back to America, and Judy came in. And after we chatted a little bit, I said to Judy, you know, I wonder if there's a problem in this apartment. Um, it smells like gasoline or something like that. Judy, I remember, was leaning against the door, and she, and then she started laughing, and she said, and I was thinking how good that fragrance was. There was a durian in the house. If you have not smelled a durian, I don't quite know how to describe the experience, but perspectives were decidedly different. And sometimes I think that's the way it is with fundraising. We see it as this marvelous opportunity we have. At other times, it's as distasteful as that, I was going to say smell, odor was for me. So we're going to talk about fundraising as a process today. And first, I want to introduce one of my colleagues, Paul. Here he's going to hand out the, um, the handout that we will be working from, and then you can make notes on there rather than have to scramble to take notes. I will also give you a business card later if you have other questions, and you can email me or email Philanthropic Service for Institutions. We are an entity of the North America Division, and we exist to serve organizations like you so that you can accomplish the fundraising in the best way possible for the cause that you serve. When we look at fundraising as a practice, sometimes we view it as something that, okay, we've got to get the money in order to get this done. One of the things that I'd like to talk to you about today is the proper sequence in which fundraising is carried out. Now, funding can be a very interesting and exciting practice because the unexpected can happen. When I was working at Union College and doing fundraising, every now and then, because someone before me had done the right thing, we would end up in somebody's will and get a nice little amount of money for some special purpose. It was unexpected. It was nice. But you can't count on that. You can also have a bake sale. You can have a walk-a-thon. You can write a proposal, possibly, although this year is not a good time to do that for a foundation grant, and you get the money. But then what? 
So the type of fundraising I want to share with you today is a process with steps that need to take place in order for you to be successful in gaining the sustainability that your organization and your cause needs. Unless you are here for just a one-time project that will be over when the funding is over, most of you want to keep your organizations going. So what we will talk about is the sustainability factor of fundraising and above all, as we look at it as a management process, as we look at the various strategies and skills you need or what I will call a toolbox, I also hope that you will consider all this in the light of the privilege that it is to work for those causes that you represent. Do it with pride and not apology. Now one final word before we launch into the topic, thank you Paul, into the topic, I sometimes spend the whole semester at the graduate level teaching what I'm going to try to give you an intelligent Reader's Digest version today in one hour and still leave time for questions. So I hope you recognize with me that we are just giving you the highlights there are ample resources, whether there are courses, whether there are materials that we can send you from PSI, or many other ways that you can learn. But uh, please recognize that, especially with this larger group, as well as the fact that we are very compressed with time, we unfortunately won't be able to do the exercises that would help you apply the information. But I did also include them there so that it would perhaps guide your thinking to the next step. All right, let's begin. My objectives for you are first of all, to give you a few perspe uh, perspectives of how philanthropy works in the United States. Again, I have been very intrigued in the 20 some years, especially the 18 that I've been in one way or another associated with the fundraising school and the Indiana University Center of Philanthropy with whom I'm still associated on a contract basis to observe how much philanthropic awareness in this country and internationally has grown. I remember when I first went to the center in 1991, the Minnesota Public Radio did a man on the street type interview and then a segment of a video and as usually happens, real life is always funnier than anything you see on a TV sitcom. And so they would literally stop people in the street and say, what is philanthropy? Now you might even be a little startled if you're walking down the street of Washington DC and somebody says, what's philanthropy? Well, the most amusing answer I can remember was, it's a prehistoric fish. <laughs> Then somebody finally got it right and parroted back the definition that our founding director at the center had coined, voluntary action for the public good. And we in this room might also add a privilege that God has granted us, that we have the means that we can share.
and certainly in America we do. So I want to look a little bit about philanthropy and you will no doubt have some questions about how all this economic situation that we are engaged in is affecting giving. So if that's of interest, I have materials with me as well as can tell you some things right off. Then I want to share some of the fundraising principles of the process. I look at some of the motivations of why people give. Nobody owes us anything. Even though almost all religions that I have ever encountered, everywhere from Islam, which has a very direct mandate for giving, the Jewish religion very much so as well. But Buddhism, all forms of Christianity, all have some sort of a religious foundation for it is more blessed to give than receive. So I've included a few texts for you just because these are some of my favorites. I find the Bible very full of good giving advice. And then of course, I'd like to have some time at the end, and both Paul and I are here for the conference and can talk to you individually or in small groups if you wish as uh, you want to develop your fundraising. And please, uh, this will get pretty boring if it's only a one-way conversation. So if you have comments and questions at any time, please feel free to raise your hand and ask those. Now, there is considerable information these days, including an institute that was started at the Center of Philanthropy, the Lake Institute for Faith and Philanthropy, uh, books that are coming out increasingly, not just by preachers, but researchers, people who think about the connection between religion and philanthropy. And I included just a few texts for you, some that actually have been my favorites. There are many, many more that have been accumulated, that have been examined on the richness of the information in the Bible about counsel for sharing our resources. Whoever gives to others will be richer. Those who help others will themselves be helped. And I find that to be a very interesting factor which goes along with some of the secular research that we have now documented. I'll show you that a little bit later. Then here's a text that says, if we give we will also be recipients of blessings. We will receive gifts that we do not expect to receive. So when we are giving, we are a benefactor instead of being a beggar. We produce things by our giving, and that is one reason I feel very privileged that I can work as a fundraiser, because it allows me to help causes that I believe are worthwhile, that I believe make us a better church, a better society. I can help make it happen. So we can see fundraising as a ministry following the example of Jesus, who very often talked about the benefits, the mutual benefits of generosity. When we do fundraising, we are able to help people be generous. You know that now, especially with some of the dot-com millionaires, we have seen in the last decade, many courses spring up that help people understand how to give. You think it's easy to give away money? 
I have sometimes worked with wealthy individuals who want to make a difference. And making those choices from all those requests that come is not easy. In fact, my husband had the privilege for a few years to be a philanthropist with somebody else's money, which was great fun when some wealthy individuals asked him to set up a personal, a private foundation, a family foundation. And watching him sort through all those requests and see what they said, what kind of a case they made, was a challenge. And we are also supported by secular research. There is a recent NIH study, I can send you that um, article if you'd like, that indicates that people who give live longer, healthier, and happier. People who give both time and money. We're talking about a National Institutes of Health research study, which verifies what the Bible has said. Now, wouldn't it be nice if fundraising were this easy? Here's Noah, in case you can't read that. Is it true, Lord, that a million years to man are like a second of time to you? Yes, why do you ask, Noah? Okay, now here's a typical way how people ask for money if they're not sure how to do it. Well, um, a small request, sir. And then he works up his courage and he says, how about giving me a million bucks, you know, for the building project and all? Certainly, Noah, just a second. <laughs> Wouldn't it be delightful if it were that easy? But this little cartoon also illustrates some of the pitfalls of how we ask for money. First of all, he's not any different than many of the street people when I was working in downtown Washington come up to you and they avert their eyes and they don't want to make eye contact, they can't really ask, they can't tell you why do we act that way when our causes are worthwhile. So poor Noah, when he finally gets the courage, he sort of blurts it out. Is he making a good case? Would you respond to that? The building project and all. But folks, how often do we do that? And then we wonder why does a donor say no? All right. Here is a quote from a long ago wise person, Aristotle. To give away money is an easy matter. Anybody can do it, but to give it away wisely is a challenge. And he recognized it that long ago. So one of the roles that we who raise funds have is to help people who truly want to make a difference. And that's one of the biggest motivations for giving away. I will show you a few of the other motivations that have been carefully researched of why people even wish to give away money. I remember in my early days of fundraising, I approached a, an alumnus of the institution where I was working, and she was a successful businesswoman. I thought I had done a reasonably good job of presenting my case and asking. And then she sort of sat there and my heart was sinking and I'm thinking, oh boy, I blew that one. And then she looks at me and she says, it's about time you asked me. <laughs> I was left speechless. People like to make a difference. And we'll look at those very well-researched factors in a few minutes. 
Paul Shervish and John Havens of Boston College have a center where they conduct considerable research and this what you have right before you is probably the best researched set of motivations of why people will give away money. Now we have these perceptions that giving is the realm of those who have made a lot of money, the wealthy among us, the Fortune 500, or whatever list that you want to look at, but philanthropy is the privilege of everyone. We had a recent article in the Washington Post that was very inspirational. It made the news, I think, across the country of this 11-year-old boy who walked in order to raise significant money. Anybody can be a philanthropist and our role, we who represent causes and are seeking the funds, need to know how to help facilitate that process between the cause and the donor. And many of these, as you look at these motivations on, on your handout, you will notice that they also have spiritual values to them. And for example, models from your youth. How much are we modeling to our young people? There are now curricula that are being used in a number of middle schools that I know about, for example, that help people that help youth learn how to be involved in their communities, how to give. But one that I really want you to notice is the third bullet down on the left-hand side, invitation to participate. Do you know the biggest reason why people don't give? Because they're not asked. And this is also verified by research. You don't have these slides because they just came out after I had done this presentation. If they are of interest to you, please write your email and a business card or a little slip of paper and I will happily send these to you. This is the most definitive research on the money that is being, being given in the United States. And this is not counting government giving. And there is considerable money that is available to many, especially social service and education organizations in this country. And if anyone has some doubts about taking government money, there are two uh, little bits of advice that I would share with you. One is, whose money is it? It's our money. And just like with any donor or any donation, we need to see what does the donor want. Or to put it in very, to put it in the vernacular, what are the strings attached? So if we have government money available, for example, I'm working with a woman from Texas who's trying to develop a health center for a lower income population. Okay, there is government money. She just needs to know how to ask for it and what does the government in turn want for that. I'm not advocating that as your main resource as you will see very shortly. Where does most of the money come from? We like to think, okay, let's write a proposal to a foundation or let's go talk to a corporation. Well, without me telling you, I'm sure you already know that's not your best resource during this time. Stock market's down, foundations are sometimes laying off personnel, people giving to people. 
And even though in the uh, um, charitable income for last year was down about 5%, we haven't seen that much of a decrease since 1974, faith-based organizations, folks, suffered the least. I hope you see that as good news. People giving to people with causes. That's the good news. And here's another pie chart of where the money goes. The religion uh, amount is extrapolated because, of course, churches do not file Form 990s, which is a record that all nonprofits have to submit to the IRS. But uh, that is a pretty good um, figure that has been arrived at quite intelligently through research. I am interested to note that from the time that I began tracking this about 20 years ago, it's down about 8%. Giving to religion is not keeping pace, and that's another role that we can play, giving to religious causes that truly make a difference. So if you want that, these uh, slides, please feel free to email me. I'll put my email up in a few minutes, and uh, I will be happy to send you those slides. If you use them, please do give credit to the Center of Philanthropy and Giving USA, which is the resource for this. Here we have another few items on why people make decisions to give. I'm not going to spend more time on it, just to point out that you have these in your handout, which you can use. Now, the caption on this got buried, I see, but the caption to this particular cartoon, and put that together, please, with a look on the pastor's face. The caption is, no, I don't think our capital campaign was a great success. <laughs> That's what you want to avoid. All right, why do we do fundraising? Here is a good list, not so much for you, because if I were to go over this, I'd be definitely preaching to the choir. You're here because you want to do fundraising well. But I just want to point out a few items. When we do fundraising, we bring a team together because it's not just the role of one person, and you'll see why. Fundraising is really six rights, and I'm quoting from the fundraising school now. The right person asking the right prospect for the right cause, in the right way, at the right time, for the right amount. Technically, if you stop and think about this, you could get up and go to another session. Because that's what fundraising is, the right person asking which means that you cannot take on that full responsibility yourself. You have to bring a team around you. Sometimes it's a president who needs to meet with a major donor. Sometimes if you're in a school, it's a faculty member who might take a student and go meet with a business person. What's the right match? I haven't always met my largest donors to causes that I have served because they wanted to see a board member or a board chair or a recipient of the benefits of that organization. People who give to an organization develop a loyalty. Your next best donor is one who has already given. And of course, fundraising is a way to accomplish good causes. 
Let's move on and actually look at the steps of fundraising. Here they are. And I'm going to illustrate each one of these. This doesn't mean that if you're missing any of these steps, you can't do fundraising, but it does mean there's a good logical sequence. There is a way to do it right. These are principles that I hope after we finish here today, you will see how you will adapt these time-proven, researched best practices that we know do work. Marketing principles, what is the environment and the climate for fundraising? How do we make a case? And if there's anything you walk away from in this session as your how-to, I hope it is knowing how to make a better case. Who would give to our causes? Volunteers are so important. Those of us who get paid to do fundraising, that's our job. But when we have a volunteer who says, I believe in this cause enough that I'm inviting you to join me so that we can make it successful, it has an enormous impact. Then we come to the practical items. What are the tools and the campaigns that you need? How much do you need to know about your prospects? You need a plan. You need to communicate that plan. And then you solicit the gift. Now you see so many people who say, I'll do anything but fundraise, probably are putting the ask right at the top without the right preparation. So let's look at the marketing principles. And I'm going to illustrate that for you. I hope you can see it. Um, if you can't, please feel free to move because now we're into the working session. And I hope that you'll work along with me but apply these principles for your organization. First of all, I'm going to illustrate the marketing principle by showing you how an exchange relationship works for a for-profit. Here we have the for-profit, whether it's a company. Can you folks see all right? All right, if you can't, just feel free to move. And it's relationship with either its customers or the clients. The for-profit may provide information or a service or a product or any one combination of those. The customer pays and pays and pays some more and here's what we're really talking about. The profit that the stockholders the owners, the profit that they want. The relationship is really quite simple. Of course, the company won't exist if they don't produce something that their clients or customers want. Now, keeping this in mind, let's look how this works for a nonprofit organization. Here you have the nonprofit organization. And when it has a relationship with its clients, the first part is the same. The nonprofit may provide information or a product or a service or a combination. Having worked at a couple of colleges, I think about a college actually does all of those. 
Here's where the differences begin. How many clients pay for everything that we need or want to provide? In the cases of some of you, you may not even know your clients. In the cases of others, you are serving clients who have no means to give. But let me interject at this point. The fact, sorry, the fact that many of your clients might be poor, don't exclude them from the privilege of giving. We have research that says that those in the lower third of the income brackets actually percentage-wise give more than those in the middle. Now because that is something that is hard to believe, it's often disputed, so our researchers get another grant and go back and they research it again and we find out that the poor are generous. Let's not include them from the privilege of making a difference even if their gifts cannot be large. There's another angle to that too. Many of your larger donors, those who can give larger amounts, want to know what those recipients are doing for themselves. I had a really interesting experience with that just recently where someone who had bought the railroads in my country, in Estonia, post-Soviet, uh, had to sell them back and he sold them. Try to feel sorry for him. He said, I should have gotten six million and I only got three million. And he said, because of corruption in your country, I'm going to, if you can channel it through an organization in the U.S., I'm going to give you 50000 for you to send over there for anti-corruption programs. Well, they did some very good things. I was able to report back to him. I was just over there. And they want more money. So do you know what he's saying? I'm going to make a challenge grant. I'll give you another 20000 if... The people themselves put in money to show they really care about this. So let's never underestimate people of all ilk. And I'll show you how that works in a few minutes. But let's continue with this. So here we have a gap that we need to fill, which is why you're here in this room, that, that gap. All right, so frequently we can turn our clients into donors who will help fill the gap, but often that's not enough. We need to attract friends from many other walks of life who will help us fill this gap. And you can see that they are going to do this if they value what we do. That's why we call it an exchange of values. If I value what you do, whether it's saving children or animals or the environment or educating somebody, I'm more likely to listen to you. But the relationship isn't over. Every donor has a right to expect something in return. If you want to put it very crudely, you can say, what's in it for me? How are we going to thank them? Sure. You may have to rip the, up the tape. Sure. Every donor has a right to expect a thank you, a report. And I have seen, thank you, I have seen how in the last 15 years, 
our donors are getting more savvy. In fact, that videotape, what is philanthropy, wouldn't be nearly as funny today because we know so much more about giving. When you find articles everywhere from Wall Street Journal to People about philanthropy, that's good for us. This is what we call the exchange relationship, understanding what we bring to our donors, understanding the values that we represent on which we can then build a case. Let's go on and look at the next step. I hope you are thinking, as we are doing this, this isn't a one-way street. It's not like when I go back, visit my kids and my grandkids say, what'd you bring me? Why do we sometimes do fundraising that way? It is what do I offer you in return for your generosity when we both want to make a difference? Okay, very briefly, a few comments about the environment and how it affects our work, our organizations. Here is your organization, and very few these days are what we call closed societies. You interact with and are affected by your environment. And I hardly need to say anything about that now because the economy certainly is having a huge effect on us. However, there are other factors that I have noticed in the last few years that we're not taking advantage of. One is a diversity. I have done considerable work on projects for Hispanic populations through a big project at the center that was funded by the Lilly Endowment. Do you know that many Hispanics in this country never get a request? I was in a meeting of Hispanic funders and a young man with a typical, you know, the Horatio Alger or the rags to riches or those stories got up and said, what does it take for people in this country to understand that a person by the name of Rodriguez actually does have a foundation and can give away money? And there is a lot of research about minority populations, how they are asked, how they are not asked, how they want to give, one size does not fit all. The diversity in this country that we are often ignoring when it comes to giving can actually help our organizations. And don't forget, philanthropy, fundraising, and the nonprofit organization is a matter of inclusivity, of belonging, just like our church membership can be so important to us. We have other factors. Technology certainly is making fundraising much easier these days. We really do have good government laws in this country when I compare it to many other countries that help us in fundraising. Demographics are sometimes giving us a challenge where people are living longer, using up their money, but here's another good factor that maybe you didn't know, that what we call the venture philanthropist, the person who has a lot of money, will not set up a foundation that you're used to seeing and, okay, we'll write a proposal. That person might look at you and say, okay, which of these organizations fulfills my values? Here we come back to values. And look for you, and if they don't find you, they're going to go set up their own organization. And people like that are not just blanket giving their money to their kids. 
Warren Buffett is a very typical example of that. He set up each one of his children with a foundation and the rest of the money he was sitting on for a long time. Until I'm ready to give, he said. And then, most of you know, he channeled it through Bill Gates. Typical venture philanthropy behavior. Another factor that may affect how your organization raises money is psychographics which we can abbreviate with VAL, values, attitudes, and lifestyles. What do people value? There are some good indicators of people wanting to be involved. One of these is in a very simple factor, which is uh, ecotourism or volunteerism. Many travel agents tell me that now, and there are travel agents who exist just to do this, they say that they are booking more travel where people are actually working while they're there because they want to make a difference. Just think how many good things can happen. All right, moving on, I would like to talk a little bit about making a case because this is probably the most important strategy that you can take away with you. A quick illustration that will bring this down to our personal uh, experience. Over a period of time, I had a number of teenagers accidentally become my kids. Now you know why I have gray hair, right? I didn't expect to be a parent in this way because all of them had some sort of a challenge or difficulty or life circumstances weren't fair to them. And they came, became my kids. And one day, and please remember the time period because I'm not so out of it as this might indicate, but uh, one of them came to me and out of the blue said, Mom, I need a pair of Reeboks. My question was, what are Reeboks? Remember the time, please. Okay, she proceeds to describe uh, footwear and I'm, th I'm doing something around the house and I'm thinking, that's easy. Sounds like exactly what I'm wearing, and I pay $10 for a Kmart. So after I feel I've listened long enough, we get to this all critical question. How much are they? Without blinking an eye, she says $85 in that tone of voice. What's my reaction? $85? Why do you need them? What's her answer, folks? <laughs> Never fails. Anywhere in the world, I've used this example, everybody else has them. Is that enough for me to say, sure, sweetheart, go get my wallet? What did she do wrong? Let's analyze this very quickly and briefly because our time is running. There was no prospect research. She had no idea what her potential donor knew or did not know about Reeboks, right? So why do so many organizations go up to someone and say, we're a good cause, you love us, don't you? Please give. And then they wonder why he's, he's no. All right, secondly, there was no cultivation period. I was just supposed to respond. Okay, it would have been nice if she had come and said, Mom, can I help you? Well, I would have wondered what was up. <laughs> but it would have been nice. We could have led into the topic, right? And yet we do the same with our organizations. We're a good cause, please give. 
Well, after the, um, now I'm getting to the third point here, after I said, no way, and uh, she went into the typical teenage whine that said, uh, but mom, now we get to the heart of the matter. I want to be on the A team of the basketball, what do you call them, anyway, the basketball team, uh, and these will help me play better. All right, at least I'm listening. Then she says, uh, now mom, I know that you think that good organized sports help build leadership in young people. All right, what is she doing? What did I just illustrate there? She's beginning to tap into my values because I do believe in the whole lifestyle and all that kind of thing. Then comes the clincher, and this is another thing that so often we do not do with our donors is to give them the good facts. She pulls out this ad, and you've all seen them. It's from a magazine, and half of the shoe is cut off. And she says, now, Mom, look how well these are made. If you invest in these now, you won't have to pay for my foot problems later. <laughs> now we're getting somewhere, aren't we? Okay, so what do we do when we build a case? First of all, we have to be able to define the problem or the need that exists. But how many of us, when we go to ask for money, we immediately ask for what we want to do? Well, how can I intelligently give you if I don't even know what kind of problem you're solving? But don't overwhelm me at this point. I can remember receiving a mailing that uh, from an environmental concern that I give to a lot of animal causes and so forth. And this one had this little envelope that fell out and it said, if you don't act in the next 10 minutes, three dolphins will die or something, you know, like that. <laughs> Being the animal lover, I mean, what was I going to do in 10 minutes? And those three dolphins were goners. And so I threw the whole thing away because it was too much. When you look at some of the projects that ASI is involved with or supports, folks, it can be overwhelming. I was recently in India. I worked with an, an amazing group that wanted to bring about change in various parts of the country. But I still can't get over the images of those little street kids. So maybe they belong to syndicates and all that. But how am I going to help all that? Now you, as an organization, need to show me that if I help one child, I've made a difference. Don't overwhelm people with the problem. But am I going to give to your problem? Of course not. I'm going to give to the outcome that you can intelligently show me is going to take place if I invest in your cause. What's going to change? What's going to be better? And give it to me honestly, because we all know there are some of these causes that use your money and they send the same picture of the same child to different donors. We have to have transparency and accountability. 
We in this room, of course, take that for granted, but remember that we often deal with a suspicious, questioning public. We have to show that. Of course, tell me why is this important to do, the values that your cause represents, how important it is to do that. Some things are automatically we take for granted. Education, nobody questions, but why your cause? Why your education? What's the value? We don't question having to intervene for abused children, but why your organization? And then there are some of the more esoteric types where I really want to know why are you doing this? Then, of course, being an intelligent donor, I want to know what are you going to do, how are you going to do it, when, and so forth, all those factors. But if you start here and say, we need $10,000 to feed 500 people three times a week, what am I thinking? Why is nobody doing it? Why aren't they helping themselves? Who are these people? What are you going to feed them? That's an awful lot of money. And you see, if we don't make an intelligent case, we forget all about the needs of the donor to know before they can act. Time is fleeting, so let's move on with another thing that's, um, uh, you've got this, let me go on. Uh, who is going to give to your organization? This is also a very critical matter. And I'm going to use a little design from the fundraising school because it is such a good illustration of how to determine who can be your markets. First of all, think about anybody, now that you've gone this far, who might give to your organization. One thing that we can do at PSI is help you run a search for foundations and for corporate giving. That's very general, it's a starting point, but we can do that, we pay for that service and we can help you, yes? Do you find that there is a lot of corporates or organizations out there that will give to religious causes or is that really not where they're designed? Uh, you said religion? Well, religious causes. Um, here's how you position yourself. Never hide anything. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, I was supposed to repeat the question. Do uh, corporations give to causes that are some sort of uh, relationship to religion? Am I paraphrasing it okay? Uh, here's, here's a way to look at it. When I was at Union College, and it was, of course, an Adventist college, was I raising money for Adventism or liberal arts education under the umbrella of Adventism? It was education. Um, in your case, knowing where you're from, uh, right now there's a big movement for the effect of spirituality on good living and all that. The fact that you're a Seventh-day Adventist is not something you hide, but you can put the emphasis on where the values are of the funder. Does that help answer? Yeah, I just much ROI on, on writing for foundations and corporations and for religious Remember the pie chart. People give to people with causes. Right now foundation giving is down, corporate giving is down. I'm an optimist. It's going to go up. Be ready when it goes up. Okay. When we look at all our potential donors, you know, you really have a universe of prospects. 
technically anybody could give to your organization, right? Now look at it this way. Here's the heart of your organization. Your board, your leadership, and your major donors are in the center. Coming from the center, we have the influence of those who are the most dedicated, who have the most invested in this organization in every possible way. Yes, sir. You know, you made a statement, the major donors are in the center. Who are they? Uh, they're the ones who have given the largest amounts to your organization, and they would not be giving them, for the most part, if they weren't committed to your cause. And one of the biggest mistakes that people make is that, uh, forgot to repeat that question. Oh, you're getting it, I think. Okay, one of the biggest mistakes people make is they're afraid, okay, you already gave me a big amount. I better not ask you again. Well, if, I, if you gain my trust and my interest enough that I give you a big sum, why would I not want to give more? It's logic. Okay, then after you've defined who else might give, you better qualify them or you're going to wear yourself out. There's a little tool that we use, the LAI principle, the linkage. What is the link that that person has to your organization? I mentioned Judy and her Southeast Asia projects and refugees. What was my link? Why have I given? personal sometimes, the fact that I was a refugee, but I was there. What's my link? Three ways already. Secondly is ability to give. And remember, we honor and respect all donors. We recognize that the people with the largest amounts help us get more done. What's the interest? Do they have an interest in your cause? Would they rather give to Adventist education of any kind in America or in Russia? Don't waste your time when you cannot have reasonably strong qualifications. Qualifying who your donors might be. Now one of the things that can be the most frustrating uh, when I'm teaching classes anywhere is where's that list of donors? I can't give that to you. You have to identify what's your cause. Who might be related to this cause in any way, interested in this cause? Is there a linkage we can develop? How can we get them attracted? Is there a cultivation? Some people don't like their term, they think that term. It's developing a relationship on behalf of the cause, not because I need you and want you. It's the cause we have to remember each time. I wish I had time to tell you some of the fascinating stories about those, uh, the way this works, but we'll have to save that. On the next slide, you have the possible donors as a general category. And I'm going to give you just a few items uh, on the next slides just to get, alert you. First of all, volunteers, you cannot do it by yourself. Remember the right person asking the right prospect for the right cause in the right way. And now let me bring up another thing. 
You have many strategies you can use. Right now, the internet, of course, is such a good supporting as well as a direct strategy. If you need to beef up your knowledge of how to use the internet, I can definitely refer you to either some books or organizations or also web workshops. That's true for any of the strategies. Out here, how are you going to reach the larger numbers? Perhaps an event. And if you think, okay, my donors are spread all over, don't forget that there are such things as cyber events. And one of my favorites, because I used to get asked to so many, was a non-event. Where I might, this is just an example of how you can get creative. Where I would get this invitation that would say, you are invited to this open house on behalf of the XYZ cause that we know you're interested in and you have supported us. Thank you very much. We also know that this takes place on December 6th and it's likely to be snowing and you'd rather stay home in front of the fire. So please send us a $16 for this ticket and here is a packet of hot chocolate that you can fix while you sit in front of the fire. Badly phrased, but that was the idea. Okay, out here, internet, mail, events. How do you write a good appeal letter? There's all kinds of advice that we can share with you. Getting a little more personal in here, use of the telephone. Now our telephones can do marvelous things. One of the latest is texting for fundraising. A little cautious about some of these. You've got to make sure you match your donor or donor group with the right strategy. And of course, nothing beats the personal appeal that you would make in here. Uh, the one-on-one -on -one request, and there is an art to it, which clearly my daughter had not mastered. I mentioned the strategies on this slide. You will see the particular strategies. Again, if you need any information on these, please feel free to contact uh, Paul or me, or I also want to give appropriate credit to Paul who just totally rebuilt our website. We will have podcasts, uh, chat, live chats, all kinds of services. We have a bibliography on there, but of course there's also six of us in the office and we're definitely happy to field your requests. Know something about your prospects or else you're not going to be able to do this LAI. Know so that you can intelligently ask. And let's move on with um, planning. This is not a session on planning except to tell you that your donors these days want plans. I was chairing a board of a women's shelter in another state and it had been one of those cases where, okay, we got the land, the houses, boom, they're off and running. And by the third month, there was a moment of truth. How do we pay? How do we buy food? So they brought me on board. I remembered a major donor out in another state, went to see him. We had a nice reunion, hadn't seen him for several years. One of the first things he says to me, Lilia, do you have a plan? Now, given the brief background I just gave you, clearly there wasn't, but I can't work without a plan, so I had made a fundraising plan, and at least for the moment it satisfied him. Then he said, okay, we know each other real well. What strings should I attach? Well, this organization had too big a board. So I said, okay, one of the ideas might be to demand 100% board giving, and by the way, 
that is almost a mandate. There's a lot of it depends, as you've noticed. You have to use your intelligence to adapt these principles. Board support is definite. If your board will not support the own organization it holds in trust, don't expect to go fundraising. That's how definite it is. Anyway, he made a challenge grant. Ask again. Now, let's take a look. I've got a few things about board and leadership that I'll just leave you with. But I do want to uh, give you uh, this page. Fundraising will succeed when there is strong leadership. Fundraisers are a part of the organization. Sometimes we hang those poor fundraisers out there and we say, go do it. And then when they don't get the amount that we expected without any intelligent examination of how much we can get or who's going to do what, then we fire them. It's an organizational effort, and I see that over and over, strong organizations can reach strong goals. A good organization with a plan, good leadership, people participating. Good communication. Why would anyone give if they don't know about you? And there's no excuse anymore for your constituents as well as the potential constituents to know who you are, especially through websites. You know that 65% of people, before they give to an organization, go and check out the website, whether or not they give through the website. That's how significant it is, and the number is growing constantly and that it takes money to raise money. The thing is, we have to talk about efficiency and effectiveness. How little can we spend to do a good job of fundraising? How much more should we put into that effort to raise that much more money? Well, our time is up. Uh, most of this is uh, self-explanatory. I would like to leave you with my uh, email. Paul also has some of mine in his cards if you want to come up and get one, but definitely you can take my email. The trick to it is to spell my first name right. And we would definitely welcome your questions, if you have any now, or if you want to see either one of us sometime during the day, we'd be happy to do so. And you do have evaluations. Yes. My question? Okay, yeah. I just want to preamble my question by just a little experience I had. Um, I'm in a small community, and we, we, in that community, we, ra we had the hospital raising money Wait. first. Yeah, I just want to preamble my question with a, with a little experience. We were in a, in a small community. In that community, we had a first a fundraising effort for a local hospital, capital campaign. They used a professional fundraising company. Then I had to raise money for a local library, and we wrestled with them. We chose not to. And the hospital raised 1.2 million. The, the, the library was less. I, I, I can't tell what would have happened if we had used them, but my question to you is, you know, what's the role of these professional fundraising organizations, especially for capital campaign? I'm glad you asked that question. Uh, consultants, consultants can be worth their weight in gold, but you have to use them wisely and always remember you're in the driver's seat. 
Uh, you know what some of the jokes about consultants are. Someone who comes from more than 50 miles away, carries a briefcase, asks to see your watch to tell you what time it is, and then keeps it. Now, since I serve in a consultant role, you see I told that on myself. But um, there are certain times when consultants really can be helpful, such as doing a feasibility study when you have a major goal. You may not know your constituents very well, and it might be wise so that you don't have a goal that you cannot logically reach. Uh, but you really need to be very clear on what do you need from that consultant, and you're still the boss. Uh, what we can do if you're at all looking for a consultant or think you need one, please call me. Uh, we have a list of consultants that we believe meet the criteria of uh, the um, constituents that PSI represents, and I would be happy to talk to you about it. Consultants cost a lot. And sometimes, I'm not saying you don't need one, but be cautious, be a wise buyer. Sometimes we spend a whole lot of more time and effort buying a car than we do spending our organization's money. Yes? Could you please talk a little bit about researching the prospects? About what? Researching the prospects. Researching the prospects. Um, First of all, remember the three criteria, the linkage ability and interest, of course. Um, researching prospects, uh, the, of course, the first uh, and easiest way to do that is uh, the prospect themselves. As you develop the relationship, they reveal more interest, which is why you need that team and you need volunteers because you can't get around to everyone yourself. There are volumes. There uh, are volumes in the library. If you go to where they keep the Foundation Center uh, volumes, uh, you will find all sorts of information that will probably astonish you because of everything that's out there. Then, of course, Google somebody, or there are all kinds of search engines that way. Uh, truly, these days, if you know how to use the resources on the internet, couple them with your own knowledge. With there, sometimes organizations will develop a committee. Now, this is all ethical and all focusing always on the cause, not the you know, okay, hey, I know that about that person, not that kind of thing. But a committee will say, okay, this, this prospect has this kind of an interest and I think that he or she could give $5,000. Then you find out more about the interests and so forth. It's an ongoing cumulative ethical project that, uh, or task that really is determined on how good is your database. Pardon? A survey? Uh, surveys have their use. You're not going to find out everything you need about that particular prospect as far as money, but frequently surveys are a great way to update some of the most basic information. Uh, we can talk about that some more if you wish, but don't forget that these days we are so rich in information. Folks, there isn't a thing you can't find out about me except my darkest thoughts. I mean my deepest thoughts. A friend of mine, whom I'm sure you know, Milton Murray, <laughs> master in, philanth in philanthropy, uh, was helping me. I was in charge of raising some money for a project. And I showed him my, my letter, solicitation letter. He said, it's good, Vivian, 
but add a personal note at the, at the bottom. Thank you for your check. I look forward to your check or whatever. Handwritten. The more personal, I'm sorry. The more personal, of course, uh, that we get, the more we reach our prospects. Uh, there are some mass mailings that we can do in order to build up our bottom level of our donor database that you can't do that. But as you go up to higher levels of giving, like renewing or larger donors or thank you letters, absolutely. The more personal, the better it is. There's a question in the back. One of the issues we come across from time to time is accepting what many people call sin money, um, like from tobacco companies, alcohol companies, um, casinos, and so forth, whether it be for schools or medical work or other um, noble projects. Um, any comments on things that you consider when that opportunity comes up? Uh, would you say that again? I missed some of it. Accepting sin money. We should, be, we should consider when. Um, there's the opportunity for receiving what is sometimes called sin money. Like from the lottery. Okay. You know, I do entire half-day sessions on ethics. <laughs> that, that is a difficult... Uh, um, if you've got time, I'll show you a very quick answer, if you want. Uh, the question was, how, uh, what about sin money? I love that. I haven't heard that. I've heard it said to be conscience money. That's, that's good. Okay. There is an expert, uh, Marilyn Fisher, who wrote a really good book on ethics. Uh, she's a philosopher at University of Dayton in Ohio. And uh, I'm going to very briefly show you this model because I think it has a lot of merit. There are two things that I can show you. One is that ethics tends to be on a continuum. On this side, we have things that are either totally right or wrong or ethical or non-ethical. I think all of you can sit there and think of those things. Um, here are those that aren't a question. We accept them. But in the middle here, we have those gray areas where maybe for one organization it would be fine. One time I was raising money for a youth leadership conference and the corporation that emerged as wanting to be the, most, the best supporter was Philip Morris. <laughs> now technically speaking, is there something wrong with it? Well, yes. Can you imagine me talking to youth and in the back here it says sponsored by Philip Morris? Okay, now that was both a practical as well as an ethical issue. But here's what uh, Marilyn recommends that you examine. And please remember, I'm doing this in a bit of a hurry. And it's not, if you want more, I'll give you that reference. Look at your decision, and of course, one of the things that your ethics experts will tell you is whatever decision you make, suppose it shows up on the front pages of the newspaper the next day, how will you feel? What will you think? Well, the first thing that you ought to measure it against is what is the mission of your organization? And folks, I'm always astonished when I talk to people about a mission that well, I guess we have one. We need to be clear. I don't care if it fits on the back of your business card. Have a mission. Why do you exist? 
If you don't have that, how are you going to make the decisions? How are you going to talk to me as a donor? Okay, secondly, you have various constituents that this decision will no doubt effect. Other donors, how will they feel about this? Will they want to give? Will they be motivated to give? Or will they quit giving? How about the community? How will you look to the community? What about your board? Ultimately, your board holds the organization in trust. How will they feel about it? And moving on through that. Finally, what can you live with? What can you live with? And looking at a decision that way, remembering again that there's this continuum of things that are absolutely unethical. But the ExxonMobil comes to mind, which was one of the biggest cases, uh, the oil spill, and was it okay to accept that kind of money? I also remember there was a Catholic school in New Orleans that was going to go under because they didn't have funding. And uh, a donor surfaced said, I'll pay for it and I'll give you some more so that you can establish yourself firmly and keep going. Sounds ideal. Problem was, the donor was a rapper. Even that is okay, except looking further, some of the lyrics were very abusive to women. Okay, Catholic school. Well, the bishop said, if it's going to save my school, it taint tainted. And it became such an issue that newspapers across the country covered that issue. And that's just to show you that these are not easy decisions to make. Well, he decided to take the money, and maybe because it had been such a big issue all over the country, nobody cared at that point. I don't know. Those are the difficult decisions to make, but I can talk to you some more about looking at how do you make that decision if you like. Couple things. Uh, if you could repeat the six, the six. Uh, oh, the six rights. Okay. The six rights are very simply uh, the right person asking, the right prospect for the right cause. Now, I hope this makes a whole lot more sense to you at this hour than it did hour and a half ago. In the right way. Remember, you have a whole tool chest. Did I say for the right cause? Yeah. At the right time. Remember, their timing uh, has all kinds of timing issues. And for the right amount. I remember when I was a little kid and uh, living in Brooklyn, New York, we would go to the tenements and knock on the doors and do in-gathering. And our phrase we'd been taught to say was, anything you can give will help. Mm. Well, you think they're going to give me $1, $10, or 10000 you know. And my question is, uh, uh, we had someone who, um, I lead a congregation of pastor, and he said he'd give a, uh, first he said he was going to pay off our mortgage. Then he said he wants to see others participate, and he said he'll do a matching. Well, we raised half, and he hasn't given his half. And Whoa. he's not a member. He attends every so often. He's attended less now. And uh, I've tried to contact him, try and set up a golfing time, try and catch him at work. And uh, somewhat avoiding. He's shown up at services. We've said hellos and stuff like that. What do I do? What do I do? Okay, the question was, there was this wealthy donor that gave to the church. 
promised to give. Promised to give to the church and made it a challenge grant, a matching grant. And they raised the matching grant money, but now the donor is not giving. Uh, the only thing that you can really do, and this is definitely locking the drawer after the horse has been stolen, is, but a warning to everybody else, when you get into these kinds of agreements, have them on paper, have them very much spelled out, and you can even say, when would you like us to remind you about your pledge payment? Now you're into negotiation. Uh, the, uh, the, anytime you have that kind of a thing, you should have an agreement. Because just to take it verbally, uh, the second thing I would say is find out if you can why he's not doing it. He, he may have suffered in this market and you could very well let him save face if you say let's talk it over as to when you think you could do this. Can we work out some other? Because the members are really looking for this uh, to happen. So you could actually be helpful to him. Uh, the third thing that I might suggest is there's nothing quite like appropriate peer pressure. Are there other people of his level who maybe not made that big a donation but have made significant donations who could talk to him? And always keeping in mind what that money was going to do, that it's really significant to carry out the cause. That might help too. But those, those are tricky, definitely tricky. <laughs> Okay, uh, it is definitely time to go. And I thank you so much for being a good audience. Paul and I will be here. If you wish to speak to us while we're here or have a quick question, we're ready for it. And thanks again, and God bless. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www asiministries.org or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons please visit www.audioverse.org